So this is our, well, I guess, first apologetics meeting in January. Um, and as you all know, Sutra Apologetics exists to help us to better understand, articulate, and defend Christian faith. And today we've got Peter Williams, who uh, is an acclaimed Christian apologist and philosopher, and he's going to be talking today on the topic of fulfilled biblical prophecy. So we give him a warm welcome, um, and just introduce, um, just let him start. <laughs> I've really enjoyed uh, researching this topic. It's something I've dipped into uh, now and again over the years, and uh, it's been nice to uh, be pulling together uh, a bigger presentation on it. So thanks for the opportunity, thanks for coming. I hope you'll find it uh, interesting and stimulating and useful. We're going to look at arguments for and from uh, biblical fulfilled uh, prophecy. It's interesting to note that various atheist uh, thinkers uh, sometimes will mention uh, prophecy as a potential way in which you could assess uh, a putative revelation from God. So this is a quote from uh, the atheist Victor Stenger, he's one of the, the new atheists, uh, in his book The New Atheism, Taking a Stand for Science and Reason. And he says uh, that in order to validate some sort of spiritual experience, uh, all that has to happen is that the person returning from such an experience report some fact that she could not have known ahead of time. Uh, this could be the successful prediction of some future event. And actually, I, I think he's much too generous in the criteria that he sets up there for making such assessment, and I'm going to be much more stringent uh, than Victor Stenger on that point. Uh, prophecy also helps us to assess uh, different revelation uh, claims. Uh, David Hume uh, famously uh, argued that uh, since all uh, religions and revelation claims all claim miracles, they kind of cancel one another out. Um, that overlooks the point that not all miracle claims are equal as uh, concerning their evidential uh, basis. Uh, and to sort of hammer home the point that it is not easy to make uh, fulfilled, biblical, uh, fulfilled prophecies. Uh, here's a couple of examples uh, from uh, the religion of Mormonism of uh, false prophecy. So it's not easy just to pull uh, a prophecy that comes true out of your back pocket. The Bible has a particular concentration on prophecy. It's been estimated that about 27% of the Bible consists of predictions about the future. Prophecy, of course, is not only about predictions about the future. It means uh, forth-telling, speaking God's word into a situation. Uh, but a lot of the time, that prophecy of speaking God's word into a situation does involve predictions of the future. Uh, so about 27% of the Bible consists of predictions. So uh, Bernard Rand says that prophecy is part and parcel of biblical religion, and that uh, is something that's uh, rather different about it than some other uh, religious traditions. Now, we can sort of subcategorize uh, predictive prophecy uh, into uh, short-term prophecies, if you like, prophecies um, about things within the lifetime of the hearers of the prophecy who can uh, thus use that prophecy to assess the prophet. And then we can talk more about long-term prophecies. There might be about things that are outside of the lifetime of the people around at the time when the prophet makes the prediction. And then end times prophecy. 
and for reasons that should be fairly obvious, end times prophecies aren't particularly useful in apologetics because the events haven't happened yet, so you can't validate whether they're true. A few verses from the Bible on prophecy. Isaiah 41.23 challenges uh, pagan gods. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you're divine. Jeremiah 28.9, the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognised as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. And a particularly famous passage here from Deuteronomy 18, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Here's a test. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So not only is it not easy to to bring out a prophecy out of your back pocket that's going to come true, but if it doesn't come true, in that Jewish culture, your life is on the line. So it's a very risky business to try and uh, hoodwink people into thinking that you're a genuine prophet of the Lord. Prophecy is used as an apologetic throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Luke. Uh, It's used by Jesus in Luke 24, by Peter uh, at the beginning of Acts, Acts 2, and by Paul. Uh, Look, for example, in Acts 17, 2-4. So it's good biblical warrant for using fulfilled prophecy as an argument. So let's... uh, start with um, a, a, an example and then we'll uh, backtrack a bit to look more carefully at the sort of criteria that one might apply to prophecies but I thought it would be more interesting to actually start with an example and then we'll look at some, uh, some uh, longer, gradually longer term prophecies uh, concluding with looking at messianic prophecies so that's the kind of outline and hopefully you've had emailed around to you I, I, I did a sort of um, worksheet with some recommended resources and so on that you should have in your inboxes so you don't have to worry too much about uh, making notes because in Wilson notes it is a straight fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple which Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time and that's in all three of the synoptic gospels did indeed suffer this very fate in Mark 13 for example uh, which I would date for reasons I don't have time to go into here but you can see in my book Understanding Jesus Why I would date Mark pretty early I would say AD 49 maybe for Mark as Jesus was leaving the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what massive stones what magnificent buildings (coughs) do you see all these great buildings replied Jesus not one stone here will be left on another Uh, and he says this will happen within a generation so there's a time limit uh, on it as well so talking about risky predictions puts me in mind of um, Karl Popper's uh, famous phrase in the philosophy of science that confirmations should count in favour of your theory only if they're a result of risky predictions Uh, and the more specific the more detail there is in your prediction the more risky it is obviously so if I say when you leave here this evening um, you might enter a building later on tonight you don't think oh wow Pete must be a prophet of the Lord if when later on the night you walk into a building and remember that I said that you know because a, it's not very specific, and, and B, 
it's pretty likely that we're going to do that uh, anyway. So uh, we'll hammer these two points uh, a few times as we go through. Uh, this is the uh, Acropolis in Athens, uh, which is a monumental complex of temples on top of a big hill, um, just like the temple complex in Jerusalem was. Um, use it as a control group, if you like, as it were. Um, if you prophesy that a big bunch of temples are going to be destroyed, um, you might think, well, you know, most stuff gets destroyed. I don't know what percentage of stuff gets destroyed. Um, but here's the Acropolis, and it's a little bit run down, but here's the Temple of Nike still standing. So if, in Jesus' day, you had said, within a generation, the Temple of Nike will be destroyed, and not one stone will be on another, and they'll be thrown down, and this will happen within a generation, or this will happen within a thousand years, or two thousand, you know, you would not have been right. Uh, here is a picture of me with the, the Parthenon, <laughs> which is looking worse for wear because during the off there was a, a war between you know, Turkey and uh, uh, the Ottomans, and, and they used it as an ammunition dump, and it got hit, and the ammunition inside exploded. Um, but it's still standing, <laughs> despite the vicissitudes of, of history, whereas the temple in Jerusalem, of course, is not. In AD 70, Titus destroys the Jerusalem temple, and here's a picture from the Arch of Titus with Roman soldiers carrying away booty from the temple. You can see uh, the typical Jewish uh, lampstand, candle stand from the temple there being carried off by the Romans. At a distance, the whole temple, we're told, looked literally like a mount of snow freshened with golden pinnacles. Now, this is interesting because when the Romans uh, took over the temple from the, the Jewish rebels who were holed up there in AD 70, the temple was destroyed as fire broke out. Uh, and the fire caused the gold fittings within and without the temple to melt. And because the gold melt melted, it ran in between the cracks of all the stones. And the Romans wanted the gold. So they levered all the stones apart to get at the gold. And that's why not one stone was left on another, because they took them all apart, right, let's look for the gold. Here's some still pictures of some of those stones that remain from the destruction of the temple, the stones being pushed over the side as they were done with them. And thus the temple man as it is today, of course, with a, now taken over by a Muslim mosque, probably on the site of where the old temple used to be. Well, there's discussion about that. <coughs> also, another detail that you notice, and a, a bit of a difference in the reportage between Luke and Mark's Gospel. Uh, Luke has this prediction by, by Jesus. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come. Those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Uh, if you're inside of the city, leave it. If you're in the country, don't go into the city because the days of vengeance to fulfill the things that are written are here. In Mark, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, which may link with prophecy in Daniel, but I don't have time to go into that, standing where he does not belong, then let those who are in Judea, Jerusalem, etc., flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. In other words, you better get out of there, PDQ. 
So there seems to be this, this one warning of when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you better get out of there. And this second warning of when you see this thing that causes desolation standing where he shouldn't, you better get the heck out of there pretty darn quick. Well, sometimes commentators link this second prediction with the events of AD 70 when Titus, having forced his way into the temple sanctuary, is the thing that the abomination that causes desolation standing where he shouldn't. Uh, and his soldiers set up standards in the temple and they sacrificed to the standards which the Jews would have considered, considered as idols, thus desecrating uh, the temple. But, for example, um, commentation on this, Robert Stein says that this is, this is too late, surely, to serve as a sign to flee Jerusalem after the siege of Jerusalem, when flight was no longer possible. What's the point of saying you better get out of there really quick when this happens? When the, you know, you're, the, the Romans are there, you're surrounded, you've been besieged. Why warn people to get out? They can't get out. Or can they? Uh, since the 19th century, we, we've known about various tunnels and caverns underneath <coughs> Jerusalem. And in 2007, so fairly recently, they re-dug up, uh, rediscovered the main drainage channel in Jerusalem that runs from underground from the temple wall all the way down to the Saloa pool. Norman Gold, professor of Jewish history and civilization at the University of Chicago, notes that underground passages enabled many inhabitants of Jerusalem to exit the city and flee both south to Masada and via Nahal Kidron and other wadis heading from Jerusalem eastward towards the Dead Sea. And there's a picture here showing how large this central drainage channel is. You can stand up uh, in there. Uh, Ronnie Reich of the University of Haifa and um, a well-known archaeologist called Eli Sukron, Jewish archaeologist from the Israeli Antiquities Authority, says there's evidence in the writings of Josephus that numerous people took shelter in the channel and even lived in it for a period until they succeeded to flee the city through its southern end. And there's another big picture of this drainage channel. And turning to the works of Josephus, to corroborate this, he certainly does mention people who went down into the subterranean caverns, says that the Romans made a search for Jews underground, and when they found where they were, they broke up the ground and slew all they met with. But here's the clincher. Uh, a little bit later on in Josephus's Jewish War, he mentions one Judas, the son of Jairus, who had been a captain of a certain band at the siege of Jerusalem, so in Jerusalem at the siege, and by going down into certain vault underground had privately made his escape. And he led another battle later on, after the fall of Jerusalem, and was uh, destroyed later on. So some people certainly did get out, and we've got that corroborated uh, from an extra biblical source. Uh, so maybe this is backdated prophecy, as it were. I, after the event, you say that this is what is predicted, now that you know that this is what happened. Hmm. Well, again, Josephus is interesting here because he records the prophecy of someone called Jesus, but a different Jesus, it was a popular name, uh, the son of Ananias, who at the Feast of the Tabernacles prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and he did this in AD 60. Uh, so if Jesus, son of Ananias, could make a prediction prior to 70 of the fall of the temple, why not Jesus? Well, probably because we know that Jesus' prediction is much more specific 
than just the temple's going to fall. It seems, it seems too precise to come beforehand. But maybe this undermines this objection a little. Um, William and Walton note that Matthew and Mark uh, verses inviting the disciples to pray that the, siege, the city would not be in winter, at which they record. Well, that would be an odd thing to put in if you're making this up after the event, because we know after the event that the siege did not take place in winter. It, it did take place uh, in winter. Um, uh, Luke uh, 21 reports the same saying, and the, the disciples should flee to the mountains. And we do know that, that a bunch of early Christians did flee Jerusalem as the armies came on, but we also know that they didn't go to mountains. They went to a place called uh, Pella, uh, which is several hundred feet lower than Jerusalem. So, actually, why would you, why would you have Jesus say, flee to the mountains, when you know that people did flee and they fled downhill, as it were? Um, that would be an odd thing to put in if you're making it up after the event, because you, you'd know that detail. Indeed, why not mention the events of AD 70 as proving Jesus' prophecy? If you're going to just make stuff up in order to impress people, why not say Jesus predicted this would all happen? And it did, didn't it? You know, Because lots of other places in the Bible, they, they say things like, and this happened in order to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. Look, here's the argument. When they, when they can say, well, we, we know that that did come true. Look, it's coming true. Um, also, the, the arguments, the standard arguments for dating uh, of Acts uh, to the uh, early 60s and uh, Luke to the very early 60s, earlier than, than Acts, and the previous synoptics earlier than that, and so on, I think you give good reason on the face of it just to, to date all of the synoptics prior to the fall of Jerusalem uh, anyway, and uh, plenty of, uh, of credited scholars would, would date the, the Gospels that way. So it's, it's the specificity of the predictions within a generation, no stone on another, stones thrown down, flee when you see the armies, but definitely flee when you see the desecration of the temple. There was evidently a bit of a lull in the fighting at that stage, which also helped people to get out. Um, just back of the envelope calculation, uh, apply a one in ten odds of each of those bits of the prediction coming true just by chance. That would give you an unlikeliness of this prediction of one in ten to the four. Uh, that is uh, one chance in 10,000 of being right just by, just by luck. Um, which brings us again to talking a little bit more about criteria. Um, Bill Craig summarises the criteria I like to use by saying that as a basis for a design inference, you need these two things. In addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. Uh, he gives this nice example, if you know about poker, he says, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one deal of cards of that length uh, out of the set of all the possible deals of that length. And they all have the same improbability, yeah? But if you find that every time a certain player de deals, he ends up getting all four aces, you can bet, haha, this is not the result of chance. If he says, what, 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 what? Oh, okay, I've got all four aces, but hey, it was just the same chances as your hand of cards. Hmm, that's not going to play in Dodge City, is he? He's going to get himself a belly full of lead if he makes that argument. 
This goes back to the work of uh, William A. Dembski um, and his groundbreaking publication in the Design Inference, which he's updated uh, since. So another example that I like to use is the, your PIN number getting at a hole in the wall machine. If you see someone enter a sequence of numbers into a cash machine and it gives them money, do you think to yourself, gosh, they're lucky? Or do you think to themselves, oh, they must have known the PIN number for that account? See? When you have a complex event, by the way, that, that, that event would be a 1 in 10 to the 4 event if you saw them get it right the first time they tried. Because um, there are four numbers tended to, yeah. So when a complex event matches an independently given specified or functionally specified pattern, we, we just naturally, and I think quite rightly and rationally, infer design. So when you see someone put in a card, go beep, 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 and they get money, that's the same specified complexity of event as we assign to Jesus' prediction about the temple coming through. And if we naturally, in the one case, think, ah, design, rather than, hey, they're lucky, say, so what applies to one, surely, should it apply to the other? Uh, Marcus Cicero, the Roman <coughs> orator and philosopher in uh, 106 to 143 BC, uh, 106 to 43 BC, sorry, the going around the way, right? Uh, has this illustration which, uh, which shows that the, the ancients were, were getting at the same kind of thing. He says, if a countless number of copies of the 1 in 20 letters of the Greek alphabet, made of gold or whatever, uh, were thrown together into some receptacle and then shaken out onto the ground, um, would it be possible that they should produce the, the annals of Aeneas? I doubt whether chance could possibly succeed in producing even a single verse of the annals of, of Aeneas. He's really kind of arguing, if you try and formalise it, something like this, saying that kind of information that we see, that kind of pattern that we see in, in a verse of Greek poetry or whatever, has to come from somewhere. And Greek letters don't contain the information in a Greek verse. You can't explain a passage of poetry by reference to the properties of the, the ink and the paper that it's expressed in, uh, or the, the little scrabble pieces, as it were, that it's written out of. So if you see a verse in letters, the information had to come from outside of the letters. And experience shows that chance can't produce much, very much information, whereas minds readily inform matter with information. Our experience tells us that constantly. So the best explanation of a verse is that some mind informed the arrangement of the letters. So just as in Scrabble, think in terms of this two-pronged criteria of specificity and complexity or unlikeliness. If you drew out of a Scrabble bag a series of Scrabble letters and it's spelled out this, whatever it is, <laughs> you'd say, okay, well, this is a very unlikely arrangement of letters. Okay? Uh, it's complex, but it is not specified. It's just gibberish. So you could very easily get away without having to invoke intelligence to explain that series of letters. So we just pulled it out by chance. It could, it could be designed. I could have chosen each and every letter deliberately. 
but you don't have it, but you you know without seeing me telling you that that's what happened the, the simplest adequate explanation of that sequence would be it was just chance if I pulled out the letters D-O-G ah that's a word you'd say hey that's specified well yes but if you've played a few games of Scrabble in your life you know that that is not an unlikely thing to happen by chance it is not very complex so again you get away without invoking design if playing Scrabble, you pulled out the bag, the sequence of letters that spell all things do become, have become, will become, some by nature, some by art, and some by chance, Plato laws. Plato arguing the same thing back in the day. Uh, then you would say to yourself, good grief, what, someone putting a magic trick on me? Where's, where's the candy camera? You know, um, It is both complex and specified and clearly the product of design or art, as Plato put it. So as Thomas Morris says, commenting on Pascal's Poncines in his book, Making Sense of It All, yes, a single successful prediction about some remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess. Uh, a shot in the dark that just happens to hit its target. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person is able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just describing it all to luck. So actually... If you have here the average, the, the probability of a prediction coming true by, by luck, and the number of predictions that you make, you can sort of divide this into, into weak or strong sort of arguments. So if you uh, made, uh, you know, um, 10 predictions that each had a 50-50 chance of coming true, well, that wouldn't be a very strong argument that there's anything odd going on. But if you made 40 predictions, each of which had a 50-50 probability of coming true, and they all came true, <laughs> okay. even if these all came true, if you only make 10 of them, it's not very impressive. Or, but, you know, if you make just uh, a few, one or two predictions that have a very low probability of coming in. So it's, there's this sort of balance between the, the, the probability and the number of predictions. If you just make one very improbable prediction, well, that's you know, as, as impressive as making a lot of fairly probable, but a lot of them. You see, it balances out. But how improbable is improbable enough? Uh, imagine the world's largest bike lock, chain lock, combination lock, okay? Uh, well, 1 in 10 to the 4, like your pin number, we've got 4 dials here with 0 to 9 on. So that's 1 in 10 to the 4. And you get what's called combinatorial inflation here. Because, of course, it's not just, um, you don't work out the probability by saying, well, it's a 1 in 10 chance plus a 1 in 10 chance plus a 1 in 10 chance plus a 1 in 10 chance. What you do mathematically is you say it's a 1 in 10 chance multiplied by a 1 in 10 chance, multiplied by a 1 in... So it goes up, zoop, like this as you move along there. So that's our pin machine here, 10 to the 4. Dembski notes this. A seemingly improbable event can become quite probable when placed within the appropriate reference class of probabilistic resources. On the other hand, it might remain improbable even after all of the relevant 
probabilistic resources have been factored in. And if it remains improbable, and therefore complex enough, and if the event is also specified, then it exhibits specified complexity. So the French mathematician Emile Bore famously proposed 1 in 10 to the 50 as a probability bound for most purposes. Uh, any specified event that's that improbable would be unreasonable to attribute to chance. Now, the reference, the, the, what's the appropriate reference class when we're looking at fulfilled prophecy? What are the, what's the appropriate set of probabilistic resources to take into account? Well, it's things happening in human history. Um, you don't need to worry about the probabilistic resources that were around when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth or whatever. So, um, a smaller probability bound than 10 to the 50 would probably suffice. Uh, you might not think that 10 to the 4 is sufficiently impressive to be a particularly strong argument. Um, how would we work out exactly on here where we should draw the line, as it were? Um, I'm not sure. I'm just going to give examples and tell you what the mounting and probabilities are and leave it to the intuitions of the listener to nag at them, I think. I don't think you, 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 know, you don't have to uh, set up the, the criteria uh, completely rigidly in order to be able to make progress in making an argument uh, rationally. But I think that that's, sets us some sort of boundary uh, marks, as it were. So if there's a close correspondent between the most plausible reading of one or more specific predictions and a sufficiently improbable event, whatever that level is, or series of events, then the best explanation for that match would be design. And in such a case, if the prediction or predictions were both written sometime before the event, and the event wasn't humanly manipulated to fit the prediction, then the best explanation of that design match would surely appeal to the supernatural resources of the religious context of the prophecy. That's what I would argue. So that's the criteria bit over, and we're back to some nice examples. So Old Testament city prophecies, um, like saving Jerusalem from Sennacherib, and that is a, quite a nice one. Um, Hezekiah had this alliance with the Egyptians that he hoped would save him from Sennacherib, and the Egyptians didn't didn't. Uh, arrive, didn't come to his aid, and uh, in 703 BC, Sennacherib begins a series of campaigns to quash various opposition to Assyrian uh, rule. Uh, so it was, this was discovered only recently. Uh, this is the seal of King Hezekiah uh, from Old Testament history. Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, son of Judah. There is the king's seal. Um, so you can read about all this in, in uh, Two Kings uh, and so on. The young, young king, 29 years old, he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria wasn't best pleased about this. And uh, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib comes up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And uh, you can go to the British Museum and see, see the reliefs of the siege of Lachish, which is another big uh, Jewish city. And you won't get much detail at, at this range here. Um, but uh, this close-up, you might just about be able to see these two Jewish guys about to be flayed alive. Uh, after the capture of Lachish. 
Uh, Assyria is a big, powerful, scary, world-spanning empire, and Judah is a small and weak and feeble by comparison and quaking in their boots, and quite rightly so. And then there's a bit of a reprieve, because Snarakarab reads a, re uh, a report that one uh, Tahaka, king of Cush, is uh, marching out against him, sort of uh, up north, as it were, uh, because he's away from home. And so he sends a message to Hezekiah saying, Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In other words, I'll be back. You know? And actually, again, in the British Museum, this is a statue of uh, King Tarka under the protection of his god, Amun, uh, who didn't protect him all that well because Snarakarab dealt with him and then came back to deal with the Jews. But that reprieve gave them a little bit of time to, uh, to prepare the defences, and we have things like Hezekiah's wall from Jerusalem and the, the famous uh, tunnel that was dug to get water inside Jerusalem so they could withstand a siege and so on. And then uh, right about, so talking about 701 BC, Isaiah has this message that the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria, he will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Don't let God deceive you that he'll protect you says the king of Assyria, I'll protect you, says God through Isaiah, if you're going to believe. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 5,180 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh and stayed there and never returned, says the Bible. Um, and you can read about this in two chronicles as well, uh, written later, about Hezekiah and Isaiah calling out to the prayer and the Lord, sending the angel of the Lord and so on, and that uh, the Assyrian king withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And in two kings there's a record of a prophecy, this is recorded a long time after the prophecy was made, so it's not particularly you know, umphy evidence this, but he does record a prophecy that I will make him return, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So he prophesies that the Snarakara will be murdered by a sword in his own country. Ah, so he won't attack Jerusalem. I mean, he's, he's come back specifically to do this. So that seems pretty unlikely that he's not even going to try. Let's say one in a hundred. He won't take Jerusalem, having, having done to do that. One in, one in ten. Uh, he'll go back to Nineveh without having taken Nineveh, and he won't even return to finish his job. He's done his return before to finish the job, so even if for some reason he didn't, I mean, this would be outstanding business, one in a hundred. Well, that's odds of one in ten to the six right there, this coming true, <laughs> this is made beforehand. Um, this we'll pretty much ignore because it's reported too late and you could say, well, it's, it's made up after the event. Um, one in ten to the five is a lot less likely than one in ten to the four. Um, if this is one penny pieces, that's one of those is your, your chance of finding it, roughly. Uh, two one-foot cubes of paint pieces. Uh, Sennacherib's prism, which you can see in the British Museum, records from the Babylonian side what happened. 
As for Hezekiah the Judite, he didn't submit to my yoke. 46 of his strong-walled cities, blah, 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 I took, besieged them and took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal cities. I threw out earthworks against him, but only to siege, not to take the city. Uh, the one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from the land and gave them to so and so and so and so and so and so and I went home. Hang on a minute. What happened to Jerusalem? He doesn't mention what happened. That's odd, isn't it? Um, ancient kings didn't record their losses. Um, this is Lachish, and here's the siege ram built up, built up against Lachish. There is no evidence that Snowcamp laid siege to Jerusalem. There's no arrowheads or projectiles or siege ramps or anything in the archaeological record. And interestingly, the Greek historian Herodotus uh, in the 5th century BC writes about a massive destruction of Sennacherib's army at what he calls the, the entrance to Egypt. Have a look on the map of where Israel is in relation to Egypt and Syria. Uh, he depicts a plague of field mice that he says chewed up the Assyrians' bowstrings, uh, which he attributes uh, to divine intervention uh, due to a lack of reverence to the gods, and this put paid to the effectiveness of Sennacherib's army. Um, well, that was in several hundred years, several you know, hundred years after this biblical event, but maybe there's a sort of half-garbled memory of some strange freak destruction of the effective fighting power of Sennacherib's army in the right kind of geographical location there. So that's, that's interesting. And the Bible reports that indeed Sennacherib, as prophesied, did die, and the 7th century BC Babylonian chronicles report the same. They don't tell us exactly how he died, so we don't know if it was by a sword or not. Um, but a couple of his sons turned traitor and killed him whilst he was worshipping. And then one of the younger sons, uh, Shadon, becomes king because they, they leg it, because they're afraid that people will take revenge on them. So unlike Lachish, for example, Snowcarab didn't raise a siege ram against Jerusalem. The army didn't shoot arrows against Jerusalem. He didn't take Jerusalem. Instead, the army was suddenly rendered impotent for some reason that maybe Garble's report of, of non-human intervention in, in Greek records. He returned to Nineveh. He didn't return to finish the job as he had once before. He was murdered, and he was murdered in his own country. And that's all corroborated from outside of biblical sources. And then, so do you just say, oh, well, that, you, that couldn't happen, being so accurate, so it must have been written later? Or do you follow the, on the face of the evidence for the dating of these reports, of the dating of Isaiah particularly? I think any charge of frauds needs to be actually substantiated by independent evidence rather than just the, the question begging assumption against supernatural uh, events. So short-term prophecies, like, okay, he's coming, but he won't take the city, guys, don't worry, that allows the Jews to assess a prophet there and then. Longer-term prophecies don't allow that, but they, they're even more impressive from our point of view, as it were, because it's even harder to say that they were 
written post the event because there's this huge historical gap and you can show that the documents were definitely written, existed earlier and so on. Um, not to mention the fact that ancient sources did take forgery seriously, they didn't like that kind of thing. That's why what some people say. And when you're dating Old Testament prophecies, we very usefully have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which put an average age of the Old Testament documents there at about 150 BC, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, as well at about 150 BC. Um, that prove those writings existed before the New Testament um, era. And you can, uh, you can also just work a sort of minimal facts argument that, that accepts liberal dates for some of these documents will work anyway. I mean, the dating of Ezekiel, for example, in the 6th century is not controversial with liberal scholars. One more Old Testament prophecy that spans short and long-term, Tyre, and then Messianic prophecies, and then we're done. And we'll have time for, for Q&A. Ezekiel's prophecy about Tyre. Ezekiel, written about 570 to 565 BC, there's this quite elaborate prediction about the fate of the powerful seaport city-state of Tyre um, after the Babylonian uh, exile. Um, this prophecy dates from 586 BC, the 11th year of King Jehoiakim, and here is another one of those little archaeological finds that's nice, a seal bearing the inscription, the property of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim, so he's a secretary seal. And without being too literalistic in our interpretation, we nevertheless find there is some specificity to this prophecy that you find in Ezekiel. Uh, and there seems to be a differentiation in the prophecy between talking about many nations, they will do certain things, and the certain sort of overall fate of the city, and a midsection that's a specific section about a sort of shorter term prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar attacking Tyre. And you can get eight points of specificity out of this, that there'll be more than one nation will attack Tyre, these attacks will be successive rather than altogether. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will attack. And, uh, he'll attack the coastal towns of the city-state first rather than going straight for the serpent's head, as it were. That Tyre will be levelled. That the rubble of Tyre will eventually be put in the sea. That Tyre will become a place where fishermen dry their nets and that the inhabitants will never rebuild Tyre. Uh, here's a map here showing the, the coastal region of Tyre, and there was this little island of Tyre just off the coast uh, where they had a, a, a fort. So what happened? Well, about 25 years after this prophecy was made, Tyre was besieged for 13 years by Nebuchadnezzar, William Blake's picture of Nebuchadnezzar here. Um, indeed, uh, one German scholar, Unger, published a tablet bearing a, a receipt for flour that was brought to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and soldiers who accompanied him to the land of Tyre. So we know that Nebuchadnezzar himself was there. Uh, we've got extra biblical documentation. And Nebuchadnezzar took the mainland city of Tyre in 573 BC and the island citadel capitulated at that stage and said, yeah, okay, fair cop, we'll, we'll serve you. Don't do, any, don't do any more. That's bad enough. Thanks. Some 250 years later, in 322 BC, Alexander the Great attacks 
the city-state of Tyre. And he didn't have his navy with him at that stage. And he used the rubble from the old mainland city that had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and slave labor from surrounding nations to build a causeway out to the fortified island in order to take it. And there's a map here showing Tyre in 322 BC, and then in the 19th century, having built this causeway out, then the accumulation of sand and so on around the causeway means that there's this sort of, this has turned it into a sort of isthmus, is that the right word? Instead of a, an island. And you can see a photo, aerial photo, there's the causeway, sort of would be built out there, and then the sand is accumulated around what was then an island, but is no more. After treating Tyre with the greatest uh, atrocity, we're told uh, Alexander re uh, rebuilt and replanted it, that future generations might regard him as the founder of a new city. And although there is now a town of Tyre in the vicinity of the old city, it's got no connection to the old city, and it's certainly not the inhabitants of Tyre that were prophesied against them, that community rebuilding themselves after being destructed. Fishermen have used the spot for generations to spread their nets, there's a photo. So as Robert Newman says, the specifications about Tyre surely sufficiently unusual to make coincidence unlikely, and they're fulfilled by such actors over such a time span as to rule out the plausibility of an intentional human fulfillment. So, in the short term, we might give a 1 in 10 to the 2 to Nebuchadnezzar attacking uh, and taking the, the coastal town. And then these six long-term elements might give us uh, 1 in 10 to the 6, just to use really easy numbers to multiply, uh, which would give us total odds of 1 in 10 to the 8 there. Evidence for the date of writing in, of Ezekiel uh, points for a time centuries before the fulfillment of the major part of the prophecy. There is no evidence for the editing of Ezekiel close to or after the time of Alexander, while much exists for a 6th century BC date. Of course, you can always argue that this conclusion can uh, never be absolutely certain, and therefore allow the assumption that prophecy can't occur to overrule the actual evidence about the dating of the thing. Um, but such an approach will be immune to any contrary evidence. It's just begging the question. So the Old uh, Testament city prophecy evidence certainly suggests that there are several accurate city prophecies in the Old Testament on the face of it, although what you make of that will, of course, depend upon your kind of world's view presuppositions. But here's one thing you can say. Even if you set aside the whole issue of prophecy, if, if people want to respond by saying, oh, well, these were, these were sort of written after the event when they knew what happened, what they're then admitting is that the Old Testament contains accurate information about what happened in history, just that it's misreported as to what time people knew it. But you do have to make this counter-argument, have to admit that, yeah, the writers of the Old Testament that we have now did have access to accurate information about certain things that happened historically. So it gets rid of the whole, oh, it's all just a fairy tale made up, got no connection to history kind of uh, scepticism that uh, is, is out there. And indeed, once you've gone that far, 
then you push the knife in a little bit more, you can say the fact that the Old Testament clearly accurately reports the historical fate of these cities in quite, deep, in quite a lot of detail, as corroborated by outside sources, surely that supports the proposition that the Old Testament actually re accurately reports the existence and the content of the city prophecies. If it's being accurate about the, everything else that it reports, why would you assume that it's not being accurate when, when it says, and the prophet Isaiah said this before the event? Well, only because you say, oh, that can't happen, you know, because you're begging the question here. So that sort of straddled short and long term. When you get to messianic prophecies, you really are talking long term, and you really do have the advantage of saying that the Septuagint Greek translation is there. The old, the, the old Testament scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls are there. This stuff definitely predates the life of Jesus by at least about 150 to 200 years. Various uh, sages of the church have used this argument down the years from uh, St. Augustine in his homily concerning faith and things not seen from the 4th century, or Blaise Pascal and his Pompsees talking about Jesus coming in the prophesied circumstances, or uh, William Paley of Paley's Watch fame, an earlier book of his called A View of the Evidences of Christianity. He defends examples from Isaiah 53 and Jesus' predictions about the temple, again. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 is a really good verse to go to to categorize this, because he talks about how the prophets told of how kind God would be, and they searched hard to find out more about the way that we would be saved. The spirit of Christ in them was telling them how Christ would suffer and would be then given great honour. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. So it gives you a nice set of categories given to you by scripture. Um, and again, not only did these predictions definitely exist beforehand, but could you say, well, they're just making up that the, the fulfilments happened? Well, again, there's various arguments for saying that's unlikely and implausible in terms of the, the character of the writers, the embarrassing things they say about themselves, shows their, their honesty in the scriptures, um, etc. It's also pretty implausible to think they invented some non-historical details in reports of, say, Jesus' death and resurrection in order to, to what's called historicise prophecies and say, yes, it came true, uh, when they only interpreted these Old Testament prophecies as being predictions of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the light of their unexpected experience of meeting a resurrected Jesus. Be that genuine or not, even if they were having delusions, it was, it was their, their sincere belief that they'd met a resurrected Jesus that then forced them to go and, re, and, and reinterpret what it meant to be Messiah. And... Stephen Davis points out that if, if the writers of the New Testament were happy to just historicise stuff or i.e. make stuff up, why didn't they just put in lots of useful stuff that, that would, would have solved various early church debates about church governorship and eating meat sacrificed to idols and so on? Why not just make up a phrase in the, word, in the mouth of Jesus to settle it uh, if you're going to just put stuff into his mouth? And they don't. We can certainly rule out, yes, there is some deliberate fulfilment. I think Jesus did some deliberate fulfilment, like riding the donkey into Jerusalem. That is making a deliberate statement. It is a fulfilment of prophecy, but he arranged for that to happen. So let's take that off the table. You know, there's enough here, we don't need it, etc. Um, the writing's going to be too small here. 
Um, but if you take eight prophecies about the Messiah's origins, his family tree, uh, and so on, uh, you get about one chance in 17 million. And I'm looking at prophecies that are they're predicted in the Old Testament, some of them numerous times, and the New Testament fulfillment of them is, is witnessed in multiple sources. I don't think it's enough just to say, and here's the fulfillment, give one source. You can give multiple, and as often as possible, multiple independent uh, sources. Four prophecies about uh, the Messiah's uh, actions, uh, about uh, one in... Uh, I can't even read the number there, but it's one in a, in a big number of millions. <laughs> um, Oregon, born in the second century, for example, reports that the Greek writer Phlegon, writing back in the first to second century, was aware of Jesus' prophetic power. It's said one of these prophecies is that Jesus will, the Messiah, will be a prophet himself. Uh, Phlegon, in the 13th or 14th book, I think, of his Chronicles, not only ascribes to Jesus a knowledge of future events, although failing, falling into confusion about some things which refer to Peter as if they referred to Jesus, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. Interesting. That's from biblical source. Um, that the Messiah will be preceded by a messenger, um, and will, the Messiah will perform healings as well. You know, a nice combination in this, if you look in the Q, the early Q do document tradition, for example, about John the Baptist in prison, asking Jesus, are you really the Messiah that I have said? I you know, trailed and said that you were. I'm having doubts now that I'm locked up in prison. And Jesus responds to him saying, oh, well, look at the healings that I'm doing. And he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah about the, the ears of the deaf are unstopped and the lame leap like the deer, etc. So Jesus' response to John the Baptist is an argument from fulfilled biblical prophecy that says, yes, I am the Messiah that you have predicted as prophesied uh, because I'm doing these specifically messianic actions of, of healing in the way predicted by Isaiah. Believe me, says Jesus, when I say I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. Uh, you've got multiple independent sources. All four categories of miracles, if you divide it up into like um, exorcisms, healing miracles, nature miracles, uh, etc. Uh, we've got 18 miracles here in a table from my book of Jesus that appear in more than one gospel. All four categories of miracle are attested by multiple early sources, including eyewitness reports, and there was even two miracles, Peter's mother-in-law and the Roman centurion's servant, where we've got multiple independent first century attestation to two healing miracles of Jesus. And you've got enemy attestation that he was reputed to be a healer from outside the Bible, from the Babylonian Talmud, Josephus, the uh, pagan philosopher Celsus, etc. So again, uh, if you took the 12 prophecies about his origins and actions, you get to about one chance in 170 million million. Take 15 aspects of his fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 about, about his death and suffering and resurrection. Give them a very low probability of one in four each. Uh, that gets you to about 1 in 1,074 a, a million. Uh, put them together, the chance of him fulfilling just those 27 prophecies by chance comes to about 1 in 1.8, 10, 10 to the 23. Um, those odds are comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first try a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all of the grains of sand on the planet. Or one star that I have specified 
and the number of stars in the observable universe. These are really long odds. That is a highly complex, very specified prophecy, set of prophecies, and more about Messianic prophecy in my book there. But let, let's summarize this by being really conservative. Let's kind of bend over backwards to be conservative here. Because you could say, well, my Messianic prophecy calculations were partially dependent upon some mir inherently miraculous events, like saying Jesus really was a healer. And here's the evidence. We gave evidence that he was a healer. But again, you'll, you know, let's bend over backwards to not invoke things that are going to invoke skepticism unnecessarily in our unconvinced audience, as it were. So set aside any events that are inherently miraculous. Um, James Ditz does this in an interesting article I reference in the handout I've given you. He lists 25 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. He assigns a very conservative 1 in 4 chance to each of them, calculating therefore 1 in 10 to the 15 prob probability. And I, swap, I would swap out one of them because he, he uses the typological fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, the escape to Egypt, which in the original context is not, you know, I've called my son out of Egypt. In the original context, it's talking about the, the coming out of Egypt, Israel. It's not talking about the Messiah. But it's applied typologically in the New Testament. So again, typological stuff as well, because, no, no, that's not so convincing. Still, um, 1 in 10 to the 15 is 1 in a quadrillion. Uh, and look up these, uh, what the numbers were called. That's um, the estimated total number of ants alive on Earth at any one time is a quadrillion, so I'm told. That's still pretty, pretty long odds. Um, so if we go through these and keep a running total, if we use 1 in 10 for each of those 25 prophecies, we get to 1 in 10 to the 25. That's here on our bike lot. There's 1 in 10 to the 4. 1 in 10 to the 25. The, the long-term tire prophecies at 1 in 10 to the 6, let's add them in. That's 1 in 10 to the 31. The, the, the primary Old Testament Jerusalem prophecies were 1 in 10 to the 5. Let's add that in. That's 1 in 10 to the 36. Uh, Jesus' New Testament Jerusalem prophecies, 1 in 10 to the 4. That's uh, 1 in 10 to the 40. And the remaining Old Testament prophecies that, that we said though, that weren't so impressive would take us up to 1 in 10 to the 44. Um, if we swapped out the Messianic prophecies here and did use the ones that are calculated in my book, that would take us past 1 in 10 to the 51. So we're past Borel's yeah, probability bound there. Um, but hey, let's bend over backwards. Let's chop out huge amounts of that. Uh, let's be very cautious and let's just say 1 in 10 to the 34. I've chopped out a huge amount, haven't I? 1 in 10 to the 34. Why have I done that? Well, it's because I can use this illustration. Think of a single specific snowflake. Okay? It's said, isn't it, that there's no two snowflakes alike. It's certainly possible, although we can't know for sure because no one can check them all. But it's possible. Um, think of a single specific snowflake. Well, David Phillips, who's the senior climatologist with Environment Canada, has estimated that the total number of snowflakes that have fallen on Earth over the course of time is 1 in 10 to the 34. So what are your chances of picking up at random, get in the TARDIS, go anywhere that it's snowing at any time or place on Earth, pick down with a pair of tweezers, pick up a snowflake, what's the chances that you've picked up the one that I have specified? 1 in 10 to the 34. Those are the odds. Depending, of a, 
hugely bending over backwards to be conservative about the odds of these prophecies coming true. So as Thomas Morris said, a fulfilled series of prophecies made by different people at different times, culminating in a single fulfillment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus, cries out for an explanation of a quite extraordinary sort. And surely the most reasonable explanation is that God, the God of Israel indeed, was involved in the prophecy stroke fulfillment, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. So the, the nice thing about this prophecy, this prophecy argument, which would come under the heading of what's being discussed these days as ramified natural theology, is it doesn't just get you to a God, like a creator of the universe of some kind, a designer, a source of the moral law, whatever. It, it's an argument for the God of Israel, the God of Jesus yeah, existing. So the Bible certainly contains some accurate knowledge about various historical events. That's at an absolute minimum, diving into this shows people. There is evidence, yes, varying in strength, but some of it quite strong, that some of those events were predicted by pretty specific prophecies that were made before the fact, sometimes quite a long time before the fact. And the best evidence here certainly concerns the messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, which is useful. And the match between these specific prophecies and events, I think, is sufficiently unlikely to justify a design inference. I think there's a then subsequent question to say, well, what's the best design explanation? Now, you could invoke cheating of some kind. Back to that. Um, but I think the best explanation, it can be argued, uh, is actually revelation from the biblical God. And that would give you things about that God, such as, well, that God must have foreknowledge and or power enough to arrange the accomplishment of what he predicts. Um, he must therefore be intelligent. He seems to express a moral concern for human communities and human people in, in Revelation and so on. It gets you a much richer, fuller picture of a revelatory, involved, theistic, Jewish, messianic God. Uh, than just going with something like the design argument. Um, but of course, I think this would be strongest given a background of pure sort of natural theology, as it were, because you know, if you present this to someone who's thinking, well, I'm, I'm really pretty certain that atheism is true and that a naturalistic worldview is true or something, they can just punt to the question begging, well, that can't be a fulfilled prophecy. They must have been cheating. It must have been written after the event. They must have been making up that it was fulfilled or whatever. Um, it's a, you've got less motivation to do that, more ability to sort of just follow the evidence where it points, as it were, if you're an agnostic looking at this evidence, or you're a deist. You think there's, there's some kind of a god, but I don't know if he's the god of Islam or Christianity, or um, the Mormons, or uh, as we saw at the beginning. There we go. On time. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Mm -hmm.